Welcome back to Books at Bedtime. I'm Tyler, your host, and today I thought I'd try recording in stereo. You know, just for fun. Alright. Chapter 11. The Binding of Iron. I sat in the back of Apenthe's wagon. It was a wonderful place for me, home to a hundred bottles and bundles, saturated with a thousand smells. To my young mind, it was usually more fun than a tinker's cart, but not today. It had rained heavily the night before, and the road was a thick morass of mud. Since the troop was not on any particular schedule, we had decided to wait for a day or two to give the roads time to dry. It was a fairly common occurrence, and it happened to fall at the perfect time for Ben to further my education. So I sat at the wooden work table in the back of Ben's wagon and chafed at wasting the day listening to him lecture me about things I already understood. My thoughts must have been apparent, because Abanthe sighed and sat down beside me. Not quite what you expected, huh, eh? I relaxed a bit, knowing his tone meant a temporary reprieve from the lecture. He gathered up a handful of the iron drabs that were sitting on the table and clinked them together thoughtfully in his hand. He looked at me. Did you learn to juggle all at once? Five balls at a time? Knives, too? I flushed a bit at the memory. Tripp hadn't even let me try three balls at first. He'd made me juggle two. I'd even dropped them a couple of times. I told Ben so. Right, Ben said. Master this trick, and you get to learn another. I expected him to stand up and start back into the lesson, but he didn't. Instead, he held out the handful of iron drabs. What do you know about these? He clattered them together in his hand. In what respect, I asked, physically, chemically, historically? Historically, he grinned. Astound me with your grasp of historical minutiae, Elier. I had asked him what Elier meant once. He claimed it meant wise one. But I had my doubts from the way his mouth had quirked when he said it. A long time ago, the people who... How long ago? I frowned at him in mock severity. Roughly two thousand years ago, the nomadic folk who roamed the foothills around the Shalda Mountains, were brought together under one chieftain. What was his name? Heldred. His sons were Heldim and Heldar. Would you like his entire lineage, or should I get to the point? I glowered at him. Sorry, sir, Ben said. Sorry, Ben sat up straight in his seat and assumed such an aspect, oh yeah, such an aspect of rapt attention that we both broke into grins. I started again. Heldred eventually controlled the foothills around the Shalda. This meant that he controlled the mountains themselves. They started to plant crops, their nomadic lifestyle was abandoned, and they slowly began to get to the point, as Abanthe asked. He tossed the drabs onto the table in front of me. I ignored him as best I could. They controlled the only plentiful and easily accessible source of metal for a great distance, and soon they were the most skilled workers of those metals as well. They exploited this advantage and gained a great deal of wealth and power. Until this point, barter was the most common method of trade. Some larger cities coined their own currency, but outside those cities, the money was only worth the weight of the metal. 
bars of metal were better for bartering, but full bars of metal were inconvenient to carry. Ben gave me his best bored student face. The effect was only slightly inhibited by the fact that he had burned his eyebrows off again about two days ago. <laughs> You're not going to go into the merits of representational currency, are you? I took a deep breath and resolved not to pester Ben so much when he was lecturing me. The no longer nomads, called the sealed Im by now, were the first to establish a standardized currency. By cutting one of these smaller bars into five pieces, you get five drabs. I began to piece two rows of five drabs each together to illustrate my point. They resembled little ingots of metal. Ten drabs are the same as a copper jot. Ten jots? Good enough, Ben broke in, startling me. So these two drabs, he held out a pair for my inspection, could have come from the same bar, right? Actually, they probably cast them individually. I trailed off under a glare. Sure. So there's something still connecting them, right? He gave me the look again. I didn't really agree, but knew better than to interrupt. Right. He set them both on the table, so when you move one, the other should move, right? I agreed for the sake of argument, then reached out to move one. But Ben stopped my hand, shaking his head. You've got to remind them first. You've got to convince them, in fact. He brought out a bowl and decanted a slow blob of pine pitch into it. He dipped one of the drabs into the pitch and stuck the other one to it, spoke several words I didn't recognize, and slowly pulled the bits apart, strands of pitch stretching between them. He set one on the table, keeping the other on his hand, sorry, the other in his hand. Then he muttered something else and relaxed. He raised his hand, and the drab on the table mimicked the motion. He danced his hand around on the brown piece, and the brown piece of iron bobbed in the air. He looked from me to the coin. The law of sympathy is one of the most basic parts of magic. It states that the more similar two objects are, the greater the sympathetic link. The greater the link, the more easily they influence each other. Your definition is circular. He set down the coin. His lecturer's facade gave way to a grin as he tried, with marginal success, to wipe the pitch off his hands with a rag. He thought for a while. Seems pretty useless, doesn't it? I gave a hesitant nod. Tricky questions were fairly common around lesson time. Would you rather learn how to call the wind? His eyes danced at me. He murmured a word, and the canvas ceiling of the wagon rustled around us. I felt a grin capture my face, wolfish. Too bad, Elair. His grin was wolfish, too, and savage. You need to learn your letters before you can write. You need to learn the fingerings on the strings before you can play and sing. He pulled out a piece of paper and jotted a couple of words on it. The trick is in holding the alar firm in your mind. Or alar, perhaps. Ah, all these strange words and their mysterious pronunciations. I wonder, is there a pronunciation guide in there? Uh, 
Pronunciation. Oh, here we go. There is a pronunciation guide. Okay. Um, So there is actually okay. So it's pronounced alar. I should I should probably look through this pronunciation guide. Oh dear. I don't see Aelir in here. That's weird. I suppose I'll just read it as it's written there. Okay. So, Alar. A-L-A-R. Alar. Okay, let's see. The trick is in holding the Alar firm in your mind. You need to believe they are connected. You need to know they are. He handed me the paper. Here is the phonetic pronunciation. It's called the sympathetic binding of parallel motion. Practice. He looked even more lupine than before, old and grizzled with no eyebrows. He left to wash his hands. I cleared my mind using heart of stone. Soon I was floating on a sea of dispassionate calm. I stuck the two bits of metal together with pine pitch. I fixed in my mind the alar, the riding crop belief that the two drabs were connected. I said the words. I pulled the coins apart, spoke the last word, and waited. No rush of power. No flash of hot or cold. No radiant beam of light struck me. I was rather disappointed. At least as disappointed as I could be in the heart of stone. I lifted the coin in my hand, and the coin on the table lifted itself in a similar fashion. It was magic. There was no doubt about that. But I felt rather underwhelmed. I had been expecting... I don't know what I'd been expecting, but it wasn't this. The rest of that day was spent experimenting with the simple sympathetic binding apathy. Sorry, is it abenthy? Apathy? Whatever. Okay, apathy had taught me. I learned that almost anything could be bound together. An iron drab and a silver talent, a stone and a piece of fruit two bricks, a clod of earth, and one of the donkeys. <laughs> a clod of earth and one of the donkeys. <laughs> uh, it took me about two hours to figure out that the pine pitch wasn't necessary. When I asked him, Ben admitted that it was merely an aid for concentration. I think he was surprised that I figured it out without being told. Let me sum up sympathy very quickly, since you will probably never need to have anything other than a rough comprehension of how these things work. First, energy cannot be created or destroyed. When you are lifting one drab, 
and the other rises off the table, the one in your hand feels as heavy as if you're lifting both, because, in fact, you are. That's in theory. In practice, it feels like you're lifting three drabs. No sympathetic link is perfect. The more dissimilar the items, the more energy is lost. Think of it as a leaky... Goodness. Think of it as a leaky aqueduct leading to a water wheel. A good sympathetic link has very few leaks, and most of the energy is used. A bad link is full of holes. Very little of the effort you put into it goes toward what you want it to do. For instance, I tried linking a piece of chalk to a glass bottle of water. There was very little similarity between the two, so even though the bottle of water might have weighed two pounds, when I tried to lift the chalk, it felt like sixty pounds. The best link I found was a tree branch I had broken in half. After I understood this little piece of sympathy, Ben taught me others, a dozen dozen sympathetic bindings, a hundred little tricks for channeling power. Each of them was a different word in a vast vocabulary I was just beginning to speak. Quite often it was tedious, and I'm not telling you the half of it. Ben continued giving me a smattering of lessons in other areas, history, arithmetic, and chemistry, but I grabbed at whatever he could teach me about sympathy. He doled out his secrets sparingly, making me prove I'd mastered one before giving me another. But I seemed to have a knack for it above and beyond my natural penchant for absorbing knowledge, so there was never too long to wait. I, I've mentioned that this is an explicit podcast, right? Okay, anyway. I don't mean to imply that the road was always smooth. The same curiosity that made me such an eager student also led me into trouble with fair regularity. One evening, as I was building up my parents' cook fire, my mother caught me chanting a rhyme I had heard the day before. Not knowing that she was behind me, she overheard as I knocked one stick of firewood against another, and absent-mindedly recited, Seven things has Lady Lackless, keeps them underneath her black dress. One a ring that's not for wearing, one a sharp word not for swearing. Right beside her husband's candle there's a door without a handle. In a box, no lid or locks, Lackless keeps her husband's rocks. There's a secret she's been keeping, she's been dreaming and not sleeping. On a road that's not for traveling, Lackless likes her riddle raveling. I had heard a little girl chant it as she played hop-skip. I'd only heard it twice, but it had stuck in my head. It was memorable, as most child rhymes are. But my mother heard me and came over to stand by the fire. What were you just saying, sweet? Her tone wasn't angry, but I, can, I could tell she wasn't pleased either. Something I heard back in Fallows, I said evasively, running off with town children was a largely forbidden activity. Distrust turns quickly to dislike, my father told new members of our troop, so stay together when you're in town and be polite. I laid some heavier sticks on the fire and let the flames lick them. My mother was silent for a while, and I was beginning to hope she would leave it alone when she said, It's not a nice thing to be singing. Have you stopped to think what it's about? I hadn't, actually. It seemed mostly nonsense rhyme. But when I ran it back through my head, I saw the rather obvious sexual innuendo. I do. I didn't think about it before. Her expression grew a little gentler, and 
she reached down to smooth my hair. Always think about what you're singing, honey. It seemed I seemed to be out of trouble, but I couldn't keep from asking, how is it any different than parts of For All His Waiting? Like when Fane asks Lady Periel about her hat. I heard about it from so many men. I wished to see it for myself and to try the fit. It's pretty obvious what he's really talking about. I watched her mouth grow firm, not angry, but not pleased. Then something in her face changed. You tell me what the difference is, she said. I hated bait questions. The difference was obvious. One would get me in trouble, the other wouldn't. I waited for a while to make it clear I had given the matter proper consideration before I shook my head. My mother knelt lightly in front of the fire, warming her hands. The difference is... Go fetch me the tripod, would you? She gave me a gentle push, and I scampered off to get it from the back of our wagon as she continued. The difference is between is between saying something to a person and saying something about a person. The first might be rude, but the second is always gossip. I brought the tripod back and helped her set it over the fire. Also, Lady Periel is just a character. Lady Lackless is a real person, with feelings that can be hurt. She looked up at me. I didn't know, I protested guiltily. I must have struck a sufficiently piteous figure, because she gathered me in for a hug and a kiss. It's nothing to cry over, sweet one. Just remember to always think about what you're doing. She ran her hand over my head and smiled like the sun. I imagine you could make it up to both Lady Lackless and myself if you found some sweet nettle for the pot tonight. Any excuse to escape judgment and play for a while in the tangle of trees by the roadside was good enough for me. I was gone almost before the words left her mouth. I should also make it clear that much of the time I spent with Ben was my free time. I was still responsible for my normal duties in the troop. I acted the part of the young page when needed. I helped paint scenery and sew costumes. I rubbed down the horses at night and rattled the sheet of tin backstage when we needed thunder on stage. But I didn't bemoan the loss of my free time. A child's endless energy and my own insatiable lust for knowledge made the following year one of the happiest times I can remember. 12. Puzzle Pieces Fitting Toward the end of the summer, I accidentally overheard a conversation that shook me out of my state of blissful ignorance. When we are children, we seldom think of the future. This innocence leaves us free to enjoy ourselves as few adults can. The day we fret about the future is the day we leave our childhood behind. It was evening, and the troop was camped by the side of the road. Abanthe had given me a new piece of sympathy to practice. The maxim of variable heat transferred to constant motion, or something pretentious like that. It was tricky, but it had fallen into place like a puzzle piece fitting. It had taken about fifteen minutes, and from Abanthe's tone, I guessed he had expected it to keep me occupied three or four hours at least. So I went looking for him, partly to get my next lesson and partly so that I could be just a little bit smug. I tracked him down to my parents' wagon. I heard three of them I heard the three of them long before I saw them. Their voices were just murmurs, the distant music that a conversation makes when it's too dim for words. But as I was coming close, I heard one word clearly. 
Chandrian. Oh, I guess I should look that up in the pronunciation guide. It is not in the pronunciation guide. I guess as I've been saying it is fine then. I pulled up short when I heard that. Everyone in the troop knew my father was working on a song. He'd been teasing old stories and rhymes from townsfolk for over a year whenever we stopped to play. For months it was stories about Lanrin. Or Lanrin. What? Frick. Okay. Hang on. Is this back here? Landrain. Landrain. Okay. Then he started gathering old fairy stories, too. Legends about bogies and shamblemen. Then he began to ask questions about the Chandrian. That was months ago. Over the last half year, he had asked more about the Chandrian and less about Lanre, Lyra, and the rest. Most songs my father set to writing were finished in a single season, while this one was stretching toward its second year. You should know this as well. My father never let a word or whisper of a song be heard before it was ready to play. Only my mother was allowed into his confidence, as her hand was always in any song he made. The cleverness in the music was his. The best words were hers. When you wait a few span or month to hear a finished song, the anticipation adds savor. But after a year, excitement begins to sour. By now, a year and a half had passed, and folk were almost mad with curiosity. This occasionally led to hard words when someone was caught wandering a little too close to our wagon while my father and mother were working. So I moved closer to my parents' fire, stepping softly. Eavesdropping is a deplorable habit, but I have developed worse ones since. <laughs> much about them i heard ben say but i'm willing i'm glad to talk with an educated man on the subject my father's strong baritone was a contrast to ben's tenor i'm weary of these superstitious country folk and that someone added wood to the fire and i lost my father's woods words in the crackling that followed stepping as quickly as i dared i moved into the long shadow of my parents wagon like I am chasing ghosts with this song. Trying to piece together this story is a fool's game. I wish I had never started it. Nonsense, my mother said. This will be your best work, and you know it. So you think there is an original story for all, uh, for all the others? <clears throat> so you think there is an original story all the others stem from? Ben asked. A historical basis for Lanray? All the signs point to it, my father said. It's looking like... <clears throat> it's like looking at a dozen grandchildren and seeing ten of them have blue eyes. You know the grandmother had blue eyes, too. I've done this before. I'm good at it. I wrote below the walls the same way, but I heard him sigh. What's the problem, then? The story's older, my mother explained. It's more like he's looking at great-great-grandchildren. And they're scattered to the four corners, my father groused. 
And when I finally do find one, it's got five eyes, two green, a blue, and a, and a brown. <laughs> and a chartreuse. Then the next one has only one eye, and it changes colors. How am I supposed to draw conclusions from that? Ben cleared his throat. <clears> throat> a disturbing analogy, he said. But you're welcome to pick my brain about the Chandrian. I've heard lots of stories over the years. First thing I need to know is how many of them there actually are, my father said. Most stories say seven, but even that's conflicted. Some say three, others five, and in Failure's Fall, there are a full thirteen of them, one for each pontifate in Ator. I should double-check that pronunciation. Sorry, I'm going to be going back here to the pronunciation guide a few times here. Ator. And an extra for the capital. That I can answer, Ben said. Seven. You can hold that with some certainty. It's part of their name, actually. Chan means seven. Chandian means seven of them. Chandrian. I didn't know that, my father said. Chan. What language is that? Ilish? That's spelled Y-L-L-I-S-H. I-S-H, goodness. S-H. <laughs> Yilish, or Illish. Y-L-L-I-S-H. I'm just fucking making up letters now. It's, I, I guess S-H is now, is now the letter S-H. God. Okay, anyway, sorry. Sounds like Tema, my mother said. You've got a good ear, Ben said to her. It's Temic, actually. Predates Tema by about a thousand years. Well, that simplifies things, I heard my father say. I wish I had asked you a month ago. I don't suppose you know why they do what they do? I could tell by my father's tone that he didn't really expect an answer. That's the real mystery, isn't it? Ben chuckled. I think that's what makes them more frightening than the rest of the bogeymen you hear about in stories. A ghost wants revenge, a demon wants your soul, a shambleman is hungry and cold. It makes them less terrible, things we understand we can try to control. But Chandrian come like lightning from a clear blue sky, just destruction, no rhyme or reason to it. My song will have both, my father said with grim determination. I think I've dug up their reason after all this while. I've teased it together from bits and pieces of story. That's what's so galling about this, to have the harder part of this done and have all these small specifics giving me such trouble. You think you know? Ben said curiously. What's your theory? My father gave a low chuckle. Oh no, Ben, you'll have to wait with the others. I've sweated too long over this song to give away the heart of it before it's finished. I could hear the disappointment in Ben's voice. I'm sure this is all just an elaborate ruse to keep me traveling with you, he groused. I won't be able to leave until I've heard the blackened thing. Then help us finish it, my mother said. The Chandrian signs are another key piece of information we can't nail down. Everyone agrees there are signs that warn of their presence, but nobody agrees on what they are. Let me think, Ben said. 
Blue flame is obvious, of course, but I'd hesitate to attribute that to the Chandrian in particular. In some stories, it's a sign of demons. In others, it's fey creatures or magic of any sort. Of any sort. It shows bad air in mines, too, my mother pointed out. Does it? My father asked. She nodded. When a lamp burns with a blue haze, you know there's fire damp in the air. Good lord, fire damp in a coal mine, my father said. Blow out your light and get lost in the black, or leave it burn and blow the whole place to flinders. That's more frightening than any demon. I'll also admit to the fact that certain arcanists occasionally use prepared candles or torches to impress gullible townsfolk. Ben said, clearing his throat self-consciously. My mother laughed. Remember who you're talking to, Ben. We'd never hold a little showmanship against the man. In fact, blue candles would be just the thing the next time we play uh, Deonica. If you happened to find a couple tucked away somewhere, that is. I'll see what I can do, Ben said, his voice amused. Other signs, one of them is supposed to have eyes like a goat. Or no eyes, or black eyes. I've heard that one quite a bit. I've heard that plants die when the Chandrian are around. Wood rots, metal rusts, brick crumbles. He paused. Though I don't know if that's several signs or all one sign. You begin to see the trouble I'm having, my father said morosely. And there's still the question as to if they all share the same signs or have a couple each. I've told you, my mother said, exasperated, one sign for each of them. It makes the most sense. My lady wife's favorite theory, my father said, but it doesn't fit. In some stories, the only sign is blue flame. In others, you have animals going crazy and no blue flame. In others, you have a man with black eyes and animals going mad and blue flames. I've told you how to make sense of that, she said, her irritated tone indicating they'd had this particular discussion before. They don't always have to be together. They could go out in threes or fours. If one of them makes fires dim, then it'll look the same as if they all made fires dim. That would account for the differences in their stories, different numbers and different signs depending on how they're grouped together. My father grumbled something. That's a clever wife you've got there, Arl, Ben spoke up, breaking the tension. How much will you sell her for? I need her for my work, unfortunately, but if you're interested in a short-term rental, I'm sure we could arrange a reason. There was a fleshy thump followed by a slightly pained chortle in my father's baritone. <laughs> Any other signs that spring to mind? They're supposed to be cold to the touch, though how anyone could know that is beyond me. I've heard that fires don't burn around them, though that directly contradicts the blue flame. It could, the wind picked up, stirring the trees. The rustling leaves drowned out what Ben said. I took advantage of the noise to creep a few steps closer. Being yoked to shadow, whatever that means, I heard my father say as the wind died down. Ben grunted. I couldn't say either. I heard a story where they were given away because their shadows pointed the wrong way, toward the light. And there's another one where one of them was re referred to as Shadow-Hamed. It was something the Shadow-Hamed. Damned if I can remember the name, though. Speaking of names, that's another point I'm having trouble with, my father said. There are a couple dozen I've collected that I'd appreciate your opinion on the most. Actually, Arl, Ben interrupted, 
I'd appreciate it if you didn't say them out loud. Names of people, that is. You can scratch them in the dirt, if you'd like, or I could go fetch a slate, but I'd be more comfortable if you didn't actually say any of them. Better safe than sore, as they say. There was a deep piece of silence. I stopped mid-sneak with one foot off the ground, afraid they'd hurt me. Now don't go looking at me like that, either of you, Ben said testily. We're just surprised, Ben, came my mother's gentle voice. You didn't seem the superstitious type. I'm not, Ben said. I'm careful. There's a difference. Of course, my father said. I'd never save it for your paying customers, Arl, Ben cut him off, irritation plain in his voice. You're too good an actor to show it, but I know perfectly well when someone thinks I'm daft. I just didn't expect it, Ben, my father said apologetically. You're educated, and I'm so tired of people touching iron and tipping their beer as soon as I mention the Chandrian. I'm just reconstructing a story, not meddling with dark arts. Well, hear me out. I like both of you too well to let you think of me as an old fool, Ben said. Besides, I have something to talk with you about later, and I'll need you to take me seriously for that. The wind continued to pick up, and I used the noise to cover my last few steps. I edged around the corner of my parents' wagon and peered through the veil of through a veil of leaves. The three of them were sitting around the campfire. Ben was sitting on a stump, huddled in his frayed brown cloak. My parents were opposite him, my mother leaning against my father, a blanket draped loosely around them. Ben poured from a clay jug into a leather mug and handed it to my mother. His breath fogged as he spoke. How do they feel about demons off in Ator? Scared, my father tapped his temple. All that religious, sorry, <clears throat> all that religion makes their brains soft. How about off in Vintus? Ben asked. A fair number of them are Tellins. Do they feel the same way? My mother shook her head. They think it's a little silly. They like their demons metaphorical. What are they afraid of at night in Ventus, then? The Fae, my mother said. My father spoke at the same time. Draugar. You're both right, depending on which part of the country you're in, Ben said. And here in the Commonwealth, people laugh up their sleeves at both ideas, he gestured at the surrounding trees. But here, they're careful come autumn time for fear of drawing the attention of shamblemen. That's the way of things, my father said. Half of being a good trooper is knowing which of which way your audience leans. You still think I've gone cracked in the head, Ben said, amused. Listen, if tomorrow we pulled into Byron and someone told you there were shamblemen in the woods, would you believe them? My father shook his head. What if two people told you? Another shake. Ben leaned forward on his stump. What if a dozen people told you with perfect earnestness that shamblemen were out in the fields, eating... Of course I wouldn't believe them, my father said, irritated. It's ridiculous. Of course it is, Ben agreed, raising a finger. But the real question is this. Would you go into the woods? My father sat very still and thoughtful for a moment. Ben nodded. You'd be a fool to ignore half the town's warning, even though you don't believe the same thing they do. If not shamblemen, what are you afraid of? 
bears, bandits. Good, sensible fears for a trooper to have, Ben, sorry, uh, ben said. Fears the townsfolk don't appreciate. Every place has its little superstitions, and everyone laughs at what the folks across the river think. He gave them a serious look. But have either of you ever heard a humorous song or story about the Chandrian? I'll bet a penny you haven't. My mother shook her head after a moment's thought. My father took a long drink before joining her. Now I'm not saying that the Chandrian are out there, striking like lightning from the clear blue sky, but folk everywhere are afraid of them. There's usually a reason for that. Ben grinned and tipped his clay cup, pouring the last drizzle of beer out onto the earth. And names are strange things, dangerous things. He gave them a pointed look. That I know for sure, because I am an educated man. If I'm a mite superstitious too, he shrugged. Well, that's my choice. I'm old. You have to humor me. My father nodded thoughtfully. It's odd. I never noticed that everyone treats the Chantrian the same. It's something I should have seen. He shook his head as if to clear it. We can come back to names later, I suppose. What was it you wanted to talk about? I prepared to sneak off before I was caught, but what Ben said next froze me in place before I took a single step. It's probably hard to see, being his parents and all, but your young Quoth is rather bright. Ben refilled his cup and held out the jug to my father, who declined it. As a matter of fact, bright doesn't begin to cover it, not by half. My mother watched Ben over the top of her mug. Anyone who spends a little time with the boy can see that, Ben. I don't see why anyone would make a point of it, least of all you. I don't think you really grasp the situation, said Ben, stretching, stretching his feet almost into the fire. How easily did he pick up the loot? My father seemed a little surprised at the sudden change of topic. Fairly easy. Fairly easily. Why? How old was he? My father tugged thoughtfully at his beard for a moment. In the silence, my mother's voice was like a flute. Eight. Think back to when you learned to play. Can you remember how old you were? Can you remember the sort of difficulties you had? My father continued to tug on his beard, but his face was more reflective now, his eyes far away. Abenthe continued, I'll bet he learned each chord, each fingering, after being shown just once. No stumbling, no complaining. And when he did make a mistake, it was never more than once, right? My father seemed a little perturbed. Mostly, but he did have trouble, just the same as anyone else. E chord. He had a lot of trouble with greater and diminished E. My mother broke in softly. I remember too, dear, but I think it was just his small hands. He was awfully young. I bet it didn't stall him for long, Ben said quietly. He does have marvelous hands. My mother would have called them magician's fingers. My father smiled. He gets them from his mother, delicate but strong. Perfect for scrubbing pots, eh, woman? <laughs> My mother swatted him, then caught one of his hands in her own and unfolded it for Ben to see. 
he gets them from his father, graceful and gentle, perfect for seducing young nobles' daughters. My father started to protest, but she ignored him. With his eyes and those hands, there won't be a woman safe in all the world when he starts hunting after the ladies. Courting, dear, my father corrected gently. Semantics, she shrugged. It's all a chase, and when the race is done, I think I pity the women chased who run. And that's chased, like with the E, uh, as in who don't uh, <laughs> dabble in, well, this is an explicit podcast, the ones who don't dabble in fuckery. Um, let's see. She leaned back against my father, keeping his hand in her lap. She tilted her head slightly, and he took his cue, leaning in to kiss the corner of her mouth. Amen, Ben said, uh, raising his mug in salute. My father put his other arm around her and gave her a squeeze. I still don't see what you're getting at, Ben. He does everything that way, quick as a whip, hardly ever makes mistakes. I'll bet he knows every song you've ever sung to him. He knows more about what's in my wagon than I do. He picked up the jug and uncorked it. It's not just memorization, though. He understands. Half the things I've been meaning to show him, he's already figured out for himself. Ben refilled my mother's cup. He's eleven. Have you ever known a boy his age who talks the way he does? A great deal of it comes from living in such an enlightened atmosphere, Ben gestured to the wagons. But most eleven-year-olds' deepest thoughts have to do with skipping stones and how to swing a cat by the tail. My mother laughed like bells, but Abanthe's face was serious. It's true, lady. I've had, others, I've had older students that would have loved to do half as well. He grinned. If I had his hands and one quarter his wit, I'd be eating off silver plates inside a year. There was a lull. My mother spoke softly. I remember when he was just a little baby, toddling around, watching, always watching, with clear, bright eyes that looked like they wanted to swallow up the world. Her voice had a little quaver in it. My father put his arm around her, and she rested her head on his chest. The next silence was longer. I was considering sneaking away when my father broke in. What is it you suggest we do? His voice was a mix of concern and fatherly pride. Ben smiled gently. Nothing except think about what options you might give him when the time comes. He will leave his mark on the world as one of the best. The best what? my father rumbled. Whatever he chooses. If he stays here, I don't doubt he will become the next Ilian. That is I-L-L-I-E-N. Let me just see if that's in the pronunciation guide. Sorry, I just, I want, now I've discovered this pronunciation guide, I, I just, I need to. Yeah, Ilian. Okay, the next Ilian. My father smiled. Ilian is the trooper's hero. The only truly famous. It, hang on. Pronunciation guide again. The only truly famous Edimaru in all of history. All our oldest, best songs are his songs. What's more, if you believed the stories, 
Ilion re reinvented the lute in his lifetime. As a master luthier, Ilion transformed the archaic, fragile, unwieldy court lute into the marvelous, versatile, seven-string trooper's lute we use today. The same stories claim Ilion's own lute had eight strings in all. Ilion, I like that thought, my mother said. Kings coming from miles away to hear my little quoth play. His music, st <laughs> his music stopping barroom brawls and border wars, Ben smiled. The wild women in his lap, my father enthused, laying their breasts on his head. There was a moment of stunned silence. Then my mother spoke slowly with an edge to her voice. I think you mean wild beasts laying their heads in his lap. Do I? <laughs> ben coughed and continued. If he decides to become an arcanist, I bet he'll have a royal appointment by the time he's twenty-four. If he gets it into his head to be a merchant, I don't doubt he'll own half the world by the time he dies. My father's brows knitted together, Ben smiled and said. Don't worry about the last one, he's too curious for a merchant. Ben paused as if considering his next words very carefully. He'd be accepted into the university, you know. Not for years, of course. Seventeen is about as young as they go. But I have no doubts about... I missed the rest of what Ben said. The university. I had come to think of it this in the same way that most children think of the Fay Court, a mythical place reserved for dreaming about, a school the size of a small town, ten times ten thousand books, people who would know the answers to any question I could ever ask. It was quiet when I turned my attention back to them. My father was looking down at my mother, nestled under his arm. How about it, woman? Did you happen to bed down with some wandering god a dozen years ago? That might solve our little mystery. She swatted at him playfully, and a thoughtful look crossed her face. Come to think of it, there was a night about a dozen years ago. A man came to me. He bound me with kisses and cords of corded song. He robbed me of my virtue and stole me away. She paused. But he didn't have red hair. Couldn't be him. She smiled wickedly at my father, who appeared a little embarrassed. Then she kissed him. He kissed her back. That's how I like to remember them today. I snuck away with thoughts of the university dancing in my head. <sighs> Let's see. I think we'll stop there tonight. Oh no! I no! I let go of my arm. Stop twisting. The, oh dang it! I closed the book without a bookmark again. Look! Look what has happened because of you twisting my arm. No, we're stopping there tonight. Still, uh, there was a time I felt that smart. I'm not, but there was a time I felt like I might be, where the world might be at my fingertips, and all I had to do was reach out. Of course, my father was, is terribly critical, so I quickly learned that anything I did would be criticized if I didn't do it perfectly, and that has 
hindered me greatly. If you have children, do not criticize them too much. Expect good things and help them get things right, but they know when they haven't done something properly. Let them be proud of the progress they're making. You have to fail in order to get good at anything. You have to do it poorly first and get better. We're not all geniuses like both who can do things perfectly after a moment's practice. You see, being criticized constantly and never praised when I got things right taught me that I should either do things perfectly perfectly or do nothing at all. That's one of the worst things you can teach a child. Nothing will set them up to fail faster than that. It's something I have had to struggle desperately to unlearn. I'm still unlearning it. I've been trying to unlearn it for nearly a decade. Be careful what you teach your children and how you treat them. Do your best to give your children opportunities to succeed and praise them when they put in good effort. And recognize when your child has some form of genius. Encourage it and help it grow. them learn to make their own choices free from you that will serve them well and help them learn how to recover from failure and how to judge the risk of a situation I think that's one of the clever things about the way Abanthi was teaching Kvothe he taught him steadily, giving him just enough that it would challenge him, but not so much as to overwhelm him, making him succeed and become a little bit proficient before moving on, and then circling back to promote mastery. Back when I was about 10, my mom had me start taking piano lessons with one of our neighbors. She taught me for a while, and I enjoyed it. I took about a year of lessons. Not nearly enough to become very good. The reason I stopped was because my teacher started having me work only on theory, with no songs 
that were challenging me, that I wanted to work towards, that I thought were cool. I didn't have anything that I was learning for, and so I chafed under only doing theory. They were such simple things, and I, I wanted more. I wanted something more complicated to challenge me. And sure, if I had practiced the theory, you know, I would have gotten better in some regards, but I wanted something technically challenging. And I asked for it. I was told no. I was told that I should focus on theory for now. I wasn't asking because, well, I was asking because I wanted to stay interested. I wanted something new and fresh to work towards. And sure, I could continue mastering the songs I had already learned. But I wanted something new to look forward to, something new to master and Lacking that, I quickly lo lost interest in learning piano. So I stopped. I never took lessons again. And now I don't know how to, how to play piano very well. I can read music and stumble through a little here and there. Most of my songs are just songs I've memorized. I can't sight read piano music to save my life. If I had to sit down and play a song full speed, I would utterly fail. So be careful how you teach your children. Let them reach for their own motivation. If they set a goal for themselves, let them have that goal and facilitate it so that they can grow. Learning to motivate yourself is one of the most powerful tools a person can have. Don't deny that to your children. Well, I'm sorry that I got so serious at the end, but we'll be back tomorrow with more of The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. Good night.